This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Good to have you joining us today on Trumpet Hour. I'm Joel Hilliker. We're going to start today with a story that almost nobody is reporting on. That is a developing trade war between America and the European Union. Tensions have emerged over the Biden administration's efforts to subsidize green energy in America. This is actually creating serious problems in European markets, particularly German car manufacturers. We'll talk with our British correspondent, Richard Palmer, to take us through exactly what is happening and why it could develop into some serious problems. In our second segment, we'll hear a report about what is at stake in the Ukraine war. Obviously, Ukraine is fighting for its survival, but what's motivating Russia to put everything on the line for control over Ukraine? We'll hear a report about this from trumpet writer Rufaro Manjepa. And then we'll go to Jerusalem. This past summer, we sent several Herbert W. Armstrong College students over there to participate in an archaeological dig, including, full disclosure here, one of my daughters. And among their finds was a rare silver coin that dates to the first century A.D. during the time of the Jewish War, the great revolt of the Jews against the Roman Empire. So this find has just been processed. It was announced last week, and it illuminates this dramatic period of Jerusalem's history. We'll talk with the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology's Brent Noctegal about this find. And I'll conclude today with a last word contrasting the view of Jesus Christ presented in Christmas with the one presented in the Bible. We'll start now with a look at this developing trade war between America and the European Union. To talk about this, we have from our office in Britain, Richard Palmer. Hello. Good afternoon. These latest tensions basically started with, or most recently, with the Biden administration deciding to invest a whole lot more in green energy. Now, that normally seems like something that Europeans would be supportive of, but this actually... Uh, created quite a stir. Can you explain why that would be? Yes, it's because they're doing it in such a way that uh, treads all over Europe's own attempts to invest in uh, their green energy. So this is comes as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, an act that seems to do everything but in, in reduce inflation. Uh, it certainly looks like it's going to increase inflation. But a big part of that is 370 billion US dollars in subsidies for electric vehicles. And both the European leaders and the American leaders are looking at European vehicles, at least the Biden administration, uh, as the future. And this is what they want to be kind of encouraging car makers to have as the majority of their cars, maybe their only cars in another 10, 15 years or so. I think you said a, you said European vehicles, but you, you mean electric vehicles. This Sorry, is what electric vehicles. Electric yes. vehicles and not necessarily European electric vehicles, but they're going all in on American manufacturers creating electric vehicles here. That's right. That's that's the whole point of this. Glad you uh, picked that <laughs> up. Um, that uh, So for each elect- American vehicle that's electric, that's made in the United States, they're offering up to $7,500 in tax credits. So if you think of that in terms of the uh, going into subsidizing the cost of a vehicle, that's a pretty significant chunk that you'd be able to discount your, your vehicle by if you're mm-hmm. receiving that level of subsidy. Now, it doesn't look like anyone's going to be able to receive that level initially, uh, Tesla and GE maybe will be eligible for half of that. Uh, but certainly you've got this coming in and saying, if you make your cars cheap cars in America, they'll, you'll be able to make them much cheaper for the consumer because the U.S. government is going to help you do that. Mm-hmm. And this is a big problem for Europe in two ways. Firstly, it's a problem because, well, now the Tesla and the GE is much more expensive than the VW or the, uh, or the BMW because they don't have those kind of incentive they don't have that kind of subsidy when selling in the united states but then also to be eligible for that subsidy these american companies also have conditions as to where the parts are made particularly critical bits in the batteries 
but also where the minerals are mined and all of these. You need to have your crucial car components made in the United States as well for you to be eligible for this subsidy. So this means that the American car companies are not going to be able to, you know, they're not going to be going out and buying parts from Europe either. So no car sales uh, or lower car sales and lower part sales as well. And then there's there's even more in terms of aspects of this deal that are going to make things much cheaper for, for US producers. There's a similar tax credit scheme for batteries made in the United States. I think they get $30 per kilowatt hour. Uh, so all of this technology will be made cheaper, but only if you're making it in the United States. Does this go beyond just car manufacturing? Are there other aspects of the uh, the the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, that basically uh, transfer consumers from European markets to American markets, or that that create this kind of trade imbalance and this friction between America and Europe? There are. This is the most, I'd say, consumer fate. The car is the most consumer facing aspect of it. Uh, I think you start to get into like wind turbine blades mm. uh, and those kind of things are also covered. So you, but they're not as obviously consumer facing. But and then also, if you think about from Germany's point of view, cars are their big thing. Yeah. Uh, both just even from a moral or a, a public perception point of view, but also just from a significant chunk of their economy, they're very focused on being able to export their cars. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where the focus has been. Yeah. So the this this has been developing for for quite some time. In fact, the friction between America and Europe over trade. Uh, I'm thinking even back to the years when Trump was in office, it seems like there was a uh, a bit of a kerfuffle over uh, steel tariffs, something along those lines that just a few years back that seemed to uh, bring a lot of ire against Donald Trump. Uh, what What is, how, how did that unfold? How does that compare with what's happening now? Yeah, I think this is an interesting thing about this whole deal because, the press was all over the Donald Trump trade war. This was, you know, more symbols of his ineptitude and unfitness to be president. He was going and starting a trade war with our allies in Europe. Uh, and it was um, relentlessly gone on about. And then, of course, Europe responded with all kinds of unflattering images of Donald Trump and talking about how terrible he was. Now, nobody in the U.S. is really focusing on this this story anywhere near as much and i think europe is taking some important lessons from it one of the news outlets that has focused on it is the wall street journal they had an article a few weeks ago biden starts a climate trade war and they wrote mm. wasn't president biden going to end donald trump's destructive trade war against allies apparently not his quote super aggressive climate protectionism to quote french president emmanuel macron is infuriating u.s friends and may set off a subsidy and tariff war so uh it is, if anything, probably a bigger trade war than what you had under Donald Trump. Uh, I think Europe responded to his steel tariffs by putting tariffs on American blue jeans and bourbon, uh, which from Europe leaders' point of view, this green energy, this is where they're investing their future. This is something that's mm -hmm. a very big deal for them. Blue jeans and bourbon are small potatoes compared to that. I guess it would be potatoes if it was vodka. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> This is this is the car industry. This is their, uh, their the German government's baby, and so for them to then see, okay, well, we face a trade war under Donald Trump, yes, but it's not just Donald Trump. We it's now you know they kind of expected where we go back to President Biden and we go back to business as usual and there's no trade war. Uh, they're waking up from that and they're realizing, okay, it doesn't matter which party is in the White House, whoever is there we're going to have trade friction, trade skirmishes, maybe if we don't want to elevate these last two incidents to full-on trade war. So they're starting to, to see it, it's not about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. they're, uh, we're in for some trade conflict with America. 
So help us to understand what's really at stake here. I think everything that we're talking about, uh, uh, like from an average American consumer standpoint, it seems abstract. It doesn't really hit our, our pocketbooks, uh, we would think. But tell us why this is something that we need to be concerned about and, and maybe uh, an idea of where this might actually lead, how this could escalate. Well, I think we can avoid having a big debate on pro-free trade um anti-free trade i think there's points to be said on 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 either side what europe is looking at responding is is putting tariffs on american goods so it becomes so america then sells they may sell more cars at home but they sell fewer into europe because europe is now putting a tariff on on their cars i think where this is going to impact more is geopolitically and i think it's going to do that in in a couple of ways one is this is pushing europe to unite uh, the German vice chancellor complained that it takes America about two months to negotiate some sanctions and get them together, and it takes Europe two years to figure out a response. Uh, and that's not really an exaggeration. That genuinely is how long it takes Europe to, to do these things because they've got to negotiate with all of these different countries. And in America, you can have a federal government come in and say, okay, yeah, we've got to buy American clause and you get this much money. How does Europe do that? There isn't a European federal government to subsidize a buy European clause, but it's getting people thinking, well, maybe there should be, or maybe there at least should be some federal tax pot, which is probably the biggest step towards a federal Europe. So this is yet another factor among a great many pushing Europe towards closer integration. But it's also something that is now, I think, pushing Europe to to set up the infrastructure of trade war and, okay, well, how can we respond more quickly how can we put on tariffs? And uh, so all of this is is leading to this world where you you do have countries much more aggressively kind of cutting off each other's markets and this kind of thing. I think it's important to note that Europe is a bit of a stealth trade war player themselves. Uh, you know, I kind of have a lot of sympathy for Donald Trump's position when he was putting some of those tariffs on and complaining about Europe, where because Germany is in the Eurozone and shares a currency with Greece and with Italy, that currency is much weaker than it would be with Germany on its own. And it gives Germany an invisible subsidy whenever they're selling cars to the United States. Mm. So I think they're kind of cheating when it comes to trade, but they're being a little more um, savvy and quiet about it. But what a lot of these commentators are pointing to, and I think rightly, is that this could be kind of the end of the open free trade era that we've seen since World War II and a retreat into something that is much more protectionist and where you see trade barriers going up much more quickly. You combine that with, say, COVID and the emphasis that that has placed on supply lines and the need to be able to control where things are made because you don't know whether the whole world might shut down one day and suddenly those essential things might be hard to get. Uh, all of this, we're looking at, um, at that kind of much more closed world. And that is important because, well, that just ties right into into some some key bits of Bible prophecy. Referring to these prophecies, uh, we have talked quite a bit about uh, the several nations in the world actually being described in prophecy as working together against American interests and specifically with regard to trade and economic activity uh, is is the developing scenario that you're describing here playing into that prophetic picture yeah i think we're seeing a world where people are sending up all over the world for all kinds of different reasons the ability to restrict trade to individuals and countries to say no we're not selling this to you or we're not selling anything to you and that's exactly what we've been talking about for years where um Deuteronomy chapter 28 talks about America being besieged in all its gates, which you think about this in a, say, a national context. And well, what does that mean? That means being cut off from trade in all of your gates, things not goods, not entering into your ports. Uh, a key passage along these lines that we come back to a lot is in Isaiah chapter 23. And this talks about it called, what, it, what it calls a mart of nations, this big overseas trading relationship that it includes Europe and China. And, ex, and the United States is not mentioned at all as being a part of that. It's a very exclusive club 
where these two trade with each other and shut out the United States. And so you look at what we're seeing right now, you're seeing the ability to, to close the gates being built into the, the global system. And you're seeing both China and Europe feeling themselves threatened by things like the Inf Inflation Reduction Act. You see, I think there was just a story just over the last day or two where Xi Jinping was praising Germany, talking about um, how China wants to be closer to, to, to Germany. I think that was on a phone call just today uh, between him and the German president and uh, the German chancellor being the first Western leader to be visiting China after COVID. You know, they're building that really close alliance, uh, that close relationship. So, yeah, you, you, you see what is forecast in the Bible taking shape in front of you right now. Well, quite, uh, quite extraordinary to see this taking place. And I guess what makes it all the more so is the fact that it's just happening under the radar. You mentioned uh, uh, an article being buried in the business section of the Wall Street Journal. It's not something that you see uh, being splashed across the front pages of many uh, major newspapers or being talked about a whole lot on on the cable news stations. And uh, to whatever degree that's the media running cover for Joe Biden and not wanting to overplay uh, mistakes that he might be making or things that he's doing that could hurt the United States and uh, how much it's just Americans not being particularly interested at this point. But these are the kinds of things that when you look at it through the lens of Bible prophecy, there really are uh, matters of concern that we need to uh, need to keep in mind. We thank you for bringing that to us. We've been talking with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about this developing trade war between America and the European Union. He's written an article about this. This is going to go out as a trumpet brief later today. If you're not a subscriber to this free email service, I'd encourage you to sign up for it. We have a morning brief, which will bring you up to speed with the latest prophetically significant headlines. And then our evening brief with an in-depth article from one of our senior writers. Uh, go to thetrumpet.com and sign up for this very valuable service. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, that's uh, a lot to uh, explain there, but we appreciate uh, your insights there. Thanks for listening. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Ukraine is fighting for its survival right now. But Russia, too, has much at stake in its war on Ukraine. Why is Russia so determined to achieve victory in this war? We'll get some answers in this report from Rufaro Manjepa. Almost everyone got it wrong. Just about every so-called expert on the matter scoffed at the possibility of Russia invading Ukraine. No, Russia will not invade Ukraine, wrote Harun Yilmaz, an expert on Ukraine and the Caucasus. Forbes was similarly bullish last December. It said that given all the potential drawbacks, a Russian invasion of Ukraine looks both foolish and unlikely. And on February 16, just four days before Russia invaded, the Atlantic Council dogmatically ran the headline, why Putin won't invade Ukraine. Now, the benefit of hindsight might make it easier to laugh at just how wrong all these experts were, but let's consider an example of spectacular foresight instead. Here's one real expert opinion about Russia and Ukraine. Russia's attack on Georgia in August marks the beginning of a dangerous new era in history. Will a crisis occur over Ukraine? That area is the breadbasket of Russia, and surely it is willing to wage war over that as well. That prediction was made by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry in 2008. Why did his prediction, given so long ago, ultimately prove so prescient? Well, first of all, it was based in provable historical fact. Let's go back to Soviet-era Russia. Agriculture was critical to the Soviet economy, and with its rich, dark, fertile soils, Ukraine's agricultural output was the bedrock of the Soviet Union's economy, and the policy of collectivization made sure of it. 
It was in the 1930s that Joseph Stalin enacted the policy of collectivization. It was a socialist policy that transferred ownership of the land in the Soviet republics to the Soviet state itself. Peasant farmers across the republics were forced from their land and state actors took control. Suddenly, the state owned the agricultural produce and redistributed it across the Union. On its own, Ukraine was responsible for 20% of the Soviet Union's agricultural output. But the socialist agricultural practices were a disaster. Agricultural output dropped by millions of tons. What little produce remained was taken by the state and sold for a profit. Anyone caught stealing grain was killed or exiled in Siberia. By the time that Stalin made it legal for Ukrainians to get their own harvest again, 7 million had died. To Stalin, this cruelty was worth it. He killed dissenters, funded his authoritarian regime, and made sure that he was in total control of the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. With the Ukraine war, Putin is following a similar pattern. You see, in the decades after the USSR's collapse in 1991, Ukraine has gradually returned to its former levels of agricultural production. In 2019, 57% of Ukraine's land was cultivated for crop production. In the United States, by comparison, it was just 17% of land. And the crops that Ukraine grows are absolutely critical. Ukraine is roughly the size of Texas, But according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Ukraine is responsible for about 10% of global wheat exports, 14% of corn exports, and about 50% of the whole world's sunflower oil. This is why Russia's invasion has wreaked havoc on the global food supply. Ukraine normally exports about 50 million tons of grain a year. But just a month after the war started, Ukraine's exports dropped by 75% from the month before. And wars are expensive. That's why many people thought that sanctions on Russia would bring a quick end to the war. But Putin has found a way. On December 1st, the Wall Street Journal released a report on an investigation into clandestine Russian grain theft operations. For the last six months, Russia has been seizing Ukrainian land, stealing grain, and smuggling it into Russian-occupied Crimea. Now it's been discovered that Russia was moving that stolen grain onto small vessels at different ports in Crimea. Those small vessels would then make their way out to sea where larger cargo ships await. These cargo ships belong to Russia's largest grain trader, RIF Trading House and the grain is transferred onto these larger ships and then sold to global buyers. Basically, Russia is stealing grain from Ukraine, selling that grain, and using the profits to fund the war on Ukraine. Yoruk Isik, head of the Bosporus Observer, a ship tracking firm, calls it what it is. He says this is wheat laundering, and the Russians have made it really hard to track. And that's the whole point of moving the grain from smaller vessels to the larger ships out in the Black Sea. It's why sometimes Russian grain has even been mixed in with the Ukrainian to hide its true origins. Ukraine might be at war, but Russia is open for business, and business is booming. According to Agflow, a Swiss research firm, from March to October last year, Sevastopol, that's a port in Crimea, shipped about 40,000 tons of grain. But this year during the war, it has shipped nearly 850,000 tons. In 2005, Vladimir Putin famously said that the fall of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And though he came 70 years after Stalin, he's a chip off the old block. He's been working furiously to reverse that catastrophe. Over the last few years especially, Putin has worked to strengthen his influence in nations like Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Georgia, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, 
all of these former Soviet states. But just as before, Ukraine has been the subject of special attention. When Putin made that statement in 2005, few understood what it meant for the global order. Few anticipated what would happen in Georgia three years later, and not enough people took the 2014 annexation of Crimea seriously. And even afterwards, many doubted that Putin would move against Ukraine again. So many have refused to accept that Putin really meant what he said. Too few truly considered what it would mean if he did, and the same mindset prevails today. News media, pundits, and experts all declare that the war in Ukraine can't possibly go on much longer. It's common to see the hashtag Russia is losing trending on Twitter. Sanctions on Russia and refills of Ukraine's war purse keep coming. But it's the West that's showing signs of fatigue now. The belief that the war is near an end is turning into wishful thinking, and former attempts at fostering goodwill toward the Ukrainian armed forces are engendering frustration instead. One viral tweet showed a Ukrainian soldier doing a TikTok dance in the snow, and it was captioned, Is this why we're paying $120 billion so they can do TikTok dances? But Russia keeps chugging along. The missile launches, the war crimes, the acts of genocide are continuing. Perhaps Russia will ultimately be forced into some kind of treaty or concession. But just as with Georgia, just as with Crimea and this very war, prove Putin won't stop there. Ukraine as a whole is too important. As Mr. Flurry said in 2008, Ukraine is the breadbasket of Russia and surely it is willing to wage war over that. Mr. Flurry went even further in 2014, following Putin's annexation of Crimea. He wrote, Putin is totally undeterred in his quest to destabilize Ukraine. He is single-handedly preventing that former Soviet Republic from aligning itself with Europe. This year, he redrew the map of Europe by making Crimea what was a semi-autonomous part of Ukraine, officially part of Russia. He is steadily rebuilding the Soviet empire. And if you study Moscow's foreign policy under Putin's leadership, it is plain that the ultimate goal is to eventually conquer the whole world. How was Mr. Flurry able to accurately predict Russia's assertive trajectory so long ago? Well, he looked to history and the lessons that it provides, and more importantly, he relied on Bible prophecy. The Apostle John was inspired to prophesy of a massive army, the largest in human history with 200 million soldiers in Revelation 9 verse 16. In Revelation 16:12, he called this army the kings of the east. And other scriptures like Ezekiel 38 verse 2 give important details about its influential leader, calling him a prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. Meshach and Tubal are ancient names designating the modern Russian cities of Moscow and Tobolsk, and Rosh is an ancient name for Russia. In the September 2014 Trumpet magazine, Mr. Flurry identified who this powerful Russian prince is. I strongly believe Vladimir Putin is going to lead the 200 million man army, Mr. Flurry wrote. Just look at the power he already has. Can you think of any other Russian politician who could become so powerful and have the will to lead Russia into the crisis of crises? I see nobody else on the horizon who could do that. This much is absolutely certain. The restoring of Russia's power by Vladimir Putin, the Prince of Russia, was prophesied. Putin is determined to restore Russia's power. He can't do that without Ukraine, the breadbasket of Russia. And he is clearly willing to fight in order to possess it. He is willing to attack civilians in order to do so. He is willing to steal and sell the grain of the very people he is attacking to fund a war against them. Many experts don't believe that he is either willing or capable of doing so, but Bible prophecy guarantees that he will. Mr. Flurry's accurate predictions are proof of the validity 
of Bible prophecy. The current war on Ukraine is proof positive of the prophecies laid out in the Bible. And as far as Ukraine, Russia and the rest of the world are concerned, these prophecies are only beginning to be fulfilled. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. Last week, the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology was able to help break the news of a recent discovery that brings some dramatic history of Jerusalem to life. A very rare silver coin from the Jewish War, or the Great Revolt of the first century A.D. To talk about this, we have from our office in Jerusalem, Let the Stone Speak writer Brent Noctegal. Hello, Brent. Hello, how are you? I'm doing very well. It's good to talk to you about this. Uh, tell us about this discovery. Yeah, what really wonderful discovery. This is a coin that came up in the excavations that we actually sponsored uh, just this past summer. Uh, we excavated for over, just over four weeks with many students from Herbert W. Armstrong College alongside Hebrew University's Professor Uzi Leavner and some students from there as well. And we found over 150 coins actually on this excavation, so quite a few. However, this one is the most special and the most rare uh, by far. This is a silver half shekel coin. As you mentioned, it was minted during the period of the Great Revolt of the Jews against the Romans that culminated in Jerusalem's destruction uh, in 70 AD. And these, there's only three of these coins that have ever been found in controlled excavations. Um, and this is something actually that even though the dig season ended almost six months ago now, it took a while to, to process. It, it was a case of all the coins being expertly cleaned uh, by uh, uh, Mimi, is what we call her at Hebrew University. That's her first name. Uh, Mimi Levy, her second name. I forgot her second name. She's uh, the, the head of the uh, conservation department there and basically went through all the coins and then gave them to the, the coin expert, Dr. Yoav Fahi. And he came and looked at this one and, and was amazed by it. Thoroughly cleaned, absolutely beautiful silver half shekel coin. So again, uh, very important. We weren't trying to keep this discovery back from the public. Um, it just so happened that it was only uh, recognized further along in the, in the publishing process. So, uh, Tell us a bit more about what was happening uh, in Jerusalem at that time. You mentioned the, the revolt that led to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Uh, so the circumstances in which this coin was minted, this is a very difficult time for the Jews. Uh, why is this significant? Yeah, this is a, a difficult time. It's also a time of... Um excitement, I would say, early on in the revolt against the Roman Empire because they are throwing off Roman rule and hope to be independent. And one of the great signs of independence is striking your own coinage. Uh, underneath the Roman Empire, you weren't allowed to do this. Um, you had to accept the coins that were given to you or that, that were from the Romans. Uh, in this case, for Israel, Israel up to this point had to pay their annual temple tax of a half shekel. It goes back to biblical times. And the coins that they used for that, each male had to pay that each year they used a silver half shekel coin from Tyre and on this coin was the the uh, the, the Tyre uh, deities um, and so this is not something that the Jews would like to bring into the temple uh, to pay for the the temple service and so one of the first things that they did in 66 when this revolt broke out was start to strike their own coinage now there's there's many different coins uh, that they that they made. We found others, other revolt coins on our excavations, and we've talked about them as well. And these are the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth year of the revolt until it ended when when Jerusalem was destroyed and and the the Jews fled, and then the last holdouts were were taken captive. Um, and we find more of them. They're still rare. 
Um, but those were your coins that were going to be used in regular day activities. You wouldn't typically use a silver half shekel coin to go and buy something. Remember, you this is in a period of war. And especially as you get to the third and fourth year, the Roman legions are getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. By the fourth year, they've actually, um, they're actually surrounding Jerusalem, besieging Jerusalem. In the third year, they're still a little ways off. Um, and so... Even though, uh, so the, these silver coins, not necessarily used for purchases uh, at this time uh, because of it's a period of war, but they still would have been used for the Jews to to um, pay for their temples, for their for the temple tax, basically, for that service. And so on these coins, instead of, you know, the, the, the gods of Tyre, um, you have Holy Jerusalem written on it. You have a chalice or a goblet that was used in the temple service. So Jewish um, biblical uh, symbols instead. And then you also had year or, or half shekel, chetzi shekel, uh, and then uh, shin gimel, which is shin is shana, the year, and gimel is the, the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So this is the third year. It was struck during the third year of the revolt, which equates to about 68 uh, A.D., so you mentioned that it was during the dig that the Herbert W. Armstrong College students undertook this past summer that this coin was found and that it was found among quite a lot of other coins. Maybe you can just talk about the archaeological context of this find. Yeah, so the, the most important thing in archaeology is not actually just to find the cool stuff, but to find it in the right context, the context meaning the time at which it was in use. And so we can be de we find coins everywhere on excavations uh, after they came into use uh, around the 4th, 3rd century BC. Before then, they didn't have coins. Um, but after that time, we start to find coins all over the dig site, um, and so we could be digging, let's say, in the Byzantine period. Uh, so the Christian era, I guess, in, in Jerusalem started around 300 uh, and goes for 400 years or so. Um, and we could be digging in that period and find a coin from the Jewish revolt. And so while that's still cool to find a coin from the Jewish revolt, that happened four or 500 years ago before the period in which you're digging. And so it has far less archeological value that could help you with dating a layer and or providing a snapshot of how people were feeling at that moment. However, if you are digging in a destruction layer of 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans, and inside that layer is where you find the coins, um, it's in the right archaeological context. It, it fits the picture um, that happened when that destruction took place. And so this is a, an absolutely horrendous destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus writes about it at length as being just a torturous experience um, for, for, the Jewish, for the Jewish people at that time. And you can even see on the coinage some of the things that they were writing, not just the silver ones, but the other revolt coins, um, talking about how at the start they wrote on the, their coins how they were trying to um, fight for the freedom of Zion is what they had written there. And then the very fourth year that changes, that script changes to now it's the redemption of Zion. They know they're going to lose against the Romans. And so they are hoping for some far off redemption that's going to come and bring them back to the city. And they're putting that message on their coins. Um, this is what you do for coins in the ancient world. You put messages that you want other people to to know. Some news gets put on the coins as they're passed from one person to another from another uh, throughout the Roman Empire. Um, and so finding the coins of the revolt of the Jews inside the destruction was specifically uh, very important archaeologically. It dates that destruction uh, it's how we get the date for the destruction. Um, it also means a lot, I think, for the for the people we were digging in, or digging with these um, people from Israel returning to this land after two thousand years, um, and recognizing that this is a wonderful opportunity for them to be in the state after two thousand years, kind of fulfilling in many ways some of the things that were written on these coins. And so our students were. Uh, thrown right into an amazing excavation. Here they were just digging about 100 meters south of the Temple Mount. 
one of the most important, if not the most important locations to be excavating and starting that excavation in the 70 AD destruction. Uh, Professor Uzi Leivner, who we were, who, who's the head of the Archaeology Institute at, at Hebrew University, I mean, he normally dug in the Galilee and other regions to the north of Israel. And for him to, to dig in this period in the destruction of Jerusalem was in, very touching um, for him and, and emotional uh, for him. Hmm. Um, so for our students to, you know, get to a dig and not have that much experience and dig a beautiful public structure that this destruction was found in uh, was was very exciting for them and, and very unique, I think, in terms of archaeology um, volunteers. That is really awesome. Um, so you had the opportunity to uh, to interview uh, Dr. Yoav Farhi, the man who actually did the uh, analysis of this coin. Uh, we have that interview posted there at uh, Let the Stone Speak at the armstronginstitute.org uh, website. I would encourage uh, people to go check that out. Anything that, that uh, surprised you or that you really uh, learned that, that uh, you were excited about from that interview? Yeah, it's probably a bit more personal. Um, I've known Yoav for uh, 15 years, uh, 16 years now. He was my first area supervisor uh, yeah. actually in the city of David back in 2006. He's the one that actually found the J.U. Kalbula uh, seal impression from the time of Jeremiah. Um, and so we we go back uh, a long way. And, and it just so happens that he's n probably number one uh, coin expert these days in in Israel. And so it was really a pleasure to interview him about this. And I would say the thing that struck me as I was giving the interview is how emotional he, he got at a certain point, actually, about learning about the Jewish people 2000 years ago and their burning desire for Jerusalem. Because hmm. um, I just didn't see him as that. He's a happy-go-lucky kind of guy. He takes his work seriously. But then to see this emotional side of him and this connection that he had to this discovery that he was able to study, uh, that was impactful for me to see how how, how resonant it was with him, acad an academic, uh, to, to read about what the Jews were doing 2,000 years ago. Hmm. And for us to have the opportunity to kind of uh, be a part of breaking this news, not only uh, the discovery of it, but then also, uh, you know, sharing this with uh, the rest of the world. Maybe you can just tell us about uh, the the role that we were able to play in that and the uh, the attention that uh, that that received. Yeah. So this is still, as of a couple hours ago, at least the number one story from Jerusalem Post, and it it's on their most read. Um, it's been up there, I think, for five or six days. Um, so there, there was something that happened actually, which is amazing coverage. I mean, it, it appeared in Newsmax, it appeared in the Miami Herald, it appeared uh, Times of Israel here, along with our video embedded into their article, uh, which was great. Um, and and so the Hebrew actually version came out of it came out first, and we had we didn't have anything to do with the Hebrew version of the press release, but we were able to look through the English version of the press release that was put out by Hebrew University, uh, and provide some edits for that, um, and then have our story ready to go at the same time on the Armstrong Institute. So, uh, we're very grateful for being able to help break the news uh, of this discovery. Well, marvelous. It's uh, great to talk to you about this, and uh, it's especially uh, enlightening to just look back at that history and to have something tangible that uh, that brings that to life and, and makes it so real. You can read those accounts. Uh, you can read the account in Josephus. I'm, I'm actually in the middle of, of reading the, the Jewish war uh, that uh, Josephus wrote, and the description is so vivid, uh, and to have this this. Uh, this tangible artifact from that period is is really quite extraordinary. Uh, we really appreciate you sharing that with us, Brent. We've been talking with Brent Noctegal about the discovery of a very rare half-shekel silver coin in Jerusalem from the first century A.D. He conducted uh, this interview with Dr. Yoav Farhi, this coin specialist who, who studied the discovery. You can find that at armstronginstitute.org. We'll link to that in the show notes. Thanks so much for sharing it with us. No worries.
It's time for today's Last Word. Every year, the noise of commercialism, materialism, and excess associated with Christmas seems to get worse. Some people try to remind others that this holiday is actually supposed to be about Jesus, but have you ever looked it up? If you just scratch the surface of any of the traditions associated with Christmas, you immediately start finding some rather grotesque things. The fact that December 25th isn't Christ's birthday is easy to prove. According to ChristianHistory.net, this is a service of Christianity Today, it was the day of the Roman birth of the unconquered son and the birthday of the Iranian son of righteousness, Mithras. The new Shaf Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge says the pagan celebrations of Saturnalia and Brumalia were held on this date. Long before that, the Egyptians marked December 25th to celebrate the birth of the son of Isis. So Christmas, quote-unquote, celebrations preceded Christ's birth by centuries. And somewhere around three centuries after Jesus' death, church leaders decided to preserve the celebration but put Christ's name on it. Schaff Herzog says, The pagan festival, with its riot and merrymaking, was so popular that Christians were glad of an excuse to continue its celebration with little change in spirit and in manner. This fact didn't sit well with many pious believers at the time. The Bible doesn't advocate celebrating Christ's birthday, or any birthday for that matter. So, as Christian history explains, many believed, quote, it would be wrong to honor Christ the same way Pharaoh and Herod were honored. Birthdays were for pagan gods. Schaff Herzog further says, Christian preachers of the West and the Near East protested against the unseemly frivolity with which Christ's birthday was celebrated, while Christians of Mesopotamia accused their Western brethren of idolatry and sun worship for adopting as Christian this pagan festival. Christian history says the pagan origins of the Christmas date, as well as pagan origins for many Christmas customs, gift-giving and merrymaking from Roman Saturnalia, greenery, lights, and charity from the Roman New Year, Yule logs and various foods from Teutonic feasts, and to this list we could add Santa Claus, who's an import from Nordic mythology, have always fueled arguments against the holiday. It's just paganism wrapped with a Christian bow, naysayers argue. Well, you can count me among the naysayers. But what's astonishing to me is how for the Christian history writer and evidently many others who've learned of this background, the pagan roots of this celebration are nothing to be concerned about. This is how this Christian history article concludes. But while kowtowing to worldliness must always be a concern for Christians— The church has generally viewed efforts to reshape culture, including holidays, positively. As a theologian asserted in 320, we hold this day holy, not like the pagans because of the birth of the Son, but because of him who made it. And just like that, they embrace appropriating a whole closet full of pagan customs. And they assume God smiles on these efforts. But notice what it says in Jeremiah 10, Verses 2 through 4. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, for the customs of the people are vain or false. For one cuts a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen, with the axe, they deck it with silver and with gold, they fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. So this is a clear biblical directive. And given that fact, why would anyone cut down a tree, fasten it down in his home, and decorate it in order to celebrate anything, let alone to celebrate a holiday supposedly intended to celebrate the Jesus of the Bible? Doesn't God have the right to tell us how and how not he wants to be worshipped? Now, even though Scripture doesn't say when Christ was born, and it doesn't command us to celebrate his birth, it does command us to remember each year his death, the death that made possible the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation of man and God. Anciently, the annual celebration of Passover, where each family killed an unblemished lamb, 
This foreshadowed the crucifixion of the Lamb of God. Jesus told his disciples to continue this annual memorial, not with animal sacrifices, but with new symbols of his broken body and his shed blood. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. So in Christmas, a humanly devised holiday, a Christian must overlook profane origins, accept a whole host of quirky pagan customs, and excuse the gross profiteering and the material excesses that becloud the whole season just to get a view of a newborn baby. But in Passover, a God-ordained memorial, a Christian remembers the history of a people of promise and remembers the miraculous protection from death and redemption from sin, not just Israel's, but also his own. And he sees the culmination of the perfect life of the Son of God offered willingly as substitutionary payment for the sins of humanity, the greatest ever act of love. And Passover is just the first of seven biblically commanded festivals that collectively tell the story of God's entire master plan, past, present, and future. Unlike Christmas and other holidays that have origins in paganism, the deeper you study into these holy days, the more divine beauty and perfection you see. They show that the God of the Bible does everything with purpose and design. And what purpose he has, and what purpose he has for the plan that began with the perfect offering of Jesus Christ, the life and death of the Messiah. It is far, far greater and much more inspiring than most people realize. If you want to learn more about it and how it's presented in glorious symbol through God's annual Holy Days, request a free copy of Herbert W. Armstrong's wonderful booklet on this subject, Pagan Holidays or God's Holy Days, which? And that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Richard Palmer, Rufaro Maniepa, and Brent Noctegal. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Marcus Aurelius. Execute every act of thy life as though it were thy last. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.